Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. The past two to three decades has been unprecedented in world history because of the massive scale and speed of poverty reduction. Hundreds of millions of people have been pulled out of poverty. This has been due, of course, to the opening up of economies around the world, most significantly to that of the world's two most populous countries, China and India. Of the two, China gets much of the attention because it's bigger. It began its reforms earlier than India, and it is now more than twice as rich as India, and thus exerts great weight in international affairs. But India's part is, is a large and growing part of the story. Since it, be, since it began its economic liberalization in the early 1990s, the country has been transformed. My Cato colleague, Swami Iyer, who couldn't be here today because he's in India this month, uh, refers to India as an elephant that became a tiger. Liberalization and high growth have led not only <clears throat> to economic, but to social transformation. And as we shall hear from our speaker today and from a short clip of the new documentary that we will be showing, uh, <clears throat> the rigidities of the ancient caste system are weakening and in some places disappearing altogether. Uh, entrepreneurs from all walks of life are becoming rich and people are becoming empowered in ways that, was previous, in ways that were previously not possible. India is the Asian giant that has reformed under democracy. That uh, political freedom is surely uh, valuable in itself and bestows certain advantages, but it also creates challenges. And despite the tremendous progress India has undergone, it still con contends with significant problems, including a weak legal system, a lack of adequate infrastructure, a bureaucracy that is still oversized, and regulations that have been inhibited the growth of many industries, particularly manufacturing, and that have led to a massive informal economy. Whether or not India is poised to address these and other pressing issues is an open question and will have an impact on not only India, but of course the world. I'm pleased uh, that our speaker today will discuss some of these issues, uh, which are happily being debated in India today in a way that was not the case uh, before the era of reforms, and he will put them in context. Johan Norberg is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and he's a uh, very prolific writer and uh, host of numerous uh, documentaries. He's somebody who focuses on globalization, entrepreneurship, and individual liberty. His books include Financial Fiasco, How America's Infatuation with Home Ownership and Easy Money Created the Economic Crisis, and In Defense of Global Capitalism, among others. He is, as I mentioned, also a, a prolific host of uh, documentaries, uh, which have included, among others, uh, a documentary on energy in the world called Power to the People, and one previous to that called Economic Freedom in Action. Uh, Yuan's articles and opinion pieces appear in, in newspapers uh, all over the world, uh, not just in Sweden, where, <laughs> where he resides, uh, but uh, all over the globe. He's frequent commentator on television and radio. Before uh, joining Cato, 
He was a, the head of political ideas at Timbro, a Swedish uh, think tank. And uh, also, uh, he has been a senior fellow at the Brussels-based Center for a New Europe, uh, at least uh, for a short period of time uh, before joining uh, the Cato Institute. I should mention that this documentary will be shown on Maryland Public Television on October 7th at 10 p.m. for those of you who, who will be, uh, who have access to that. So let's welcome Johan Norbert. Thank you and thank you, Ian. 10 years ago, I came back to Sweden from a visit to China and to India, and I wrote an article about the problem that I had on this trip. The problem of making it possible to sit at a Starbucks, sipping a cappuccino, reading The Economist, because that was impossible in both countries, but for different reasons. In China, there were Starbucks cafes. Uh, the economy had begun to open up uh, to a considerable extent, but the political situation had not, so The Economist was banned. It was impossible for me to read it at the same time. In India, I could read The Economist or basically anything, because an open political system with free speech made that possible, but I couldn't do it in a Starbucks because of the extent of regulation, import barriers, and uh, license requirements that made it impossible for Starbucks to operate in India. And I asked the question in that article, where will it be possible for me to do both things at first, uh, for the first time? Um, will it be that the political openness in India will be followed by economic openness, or will it be the economic openness of China resulting in political openness? Well, the results are in. Recently, when I visited India for this documentary, I could sit in a Starbucks, one of many Starbucks now. They expand aggressively in India right now. And I could drink a cappuccino. That's one of many reasons why India is very interesting to me. This combination of democracy and, and economic freedom. Now, there's been a lot of hype recently about the new Indian-born CEO of Google, who now joined the ranks of other Indian-born CEOs in businesses like Microsoft and Nokia. They suddenly seem to run Silicon Valley. And that's one aspect of this story, but it also, in a way, just makes us recall that old saying. A parliamentarian who asked the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, why is it that Indians seem to succeed everywhere except in their own country, India? Why is that? The moment they go abroad to a more business-friendly place, to a more open economy, they do incredibly well. Why does that not happen in India? Well, we know why, because the, Indian, the new Indian government after independence inherited a system of hierarchy and control from the British, and they uh, made it even more suffocating when it came to the economy in many ways. The old British Raj, who told people what to do and when to do it, was replaced by a licensed Raj, who told everybody what to produce, when to produce it, in what quantity, at what price, and what they could and couldn't do. It became one of the worst countries in the world to do business, to trade, to resolve court cases. Despite the political openness, the free speech, the open debate, it seemed to be impossible to have the same kind of experiments and innovation when it came to the economy. And everywhere, as a result, we had bureaucrats and policemen taking bribes. Because when you're in the hands of the bureaucrat, they also can extend and hand and demand for a bribe for you to do anything, basically. So for decades, we talked about the Hindu 
rate of growth, which was supposedly a, a growth rate that's lower than the uh, growth rate of the population. So basically, Indians got poorer and uh, found it impossible to really make a living. And yet, the Indian population during all these years were incredibly inventive and hardworking, and they had to be just to get by. As Gurcharandas, who is uh, one of the experts in, interviewed in this uh, film, puts it, the economy in India grows at night because that is when the government sleeps. Now, the question we pose in this documentary is what happens when the government begins to take a nap once in a while during daytime as well? That's what the show is about, because the old system began to crumble in 1991. After decades of stagnation, half the population living in extreme poverty, India ended up in a severe crisis, and foreign exchange reserves had been reduced to such a point that India could barely finance three weeks' worth of imports. At that point, the system was falling apart, and the government began to reform the economy. Um, they abolished many of the regulations, many of the license requirements, reduced many of the import uh, tariffs, and more people got more freedoms in India. And the result already is impressive. The Hindu rate of growth, it turned out, wasn't very Hindu at all. It was just a result of stopping Hindus and other Indians from um, experimenting, innovating, starting businesses, expanding their businesses and trading with the rest of the world. Since 1991, the average growth rate of the Indian incomes has been 7.5% a year. At that rate, you double average incomes every 10 years. According to the World Bank, 140 million people were raised out of poverty in just the three last years. 140 million people in three years. And many are approaching a middle-class lifestyle. The reforms are still very patchy. The speed is slow. This has not happened everywhere, not in all sectors, not at all. But there are now new openings and people who rapidly exploit those openings when that happens. As the great philosopher Leonard Cohen puts it, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And that's what the show is about, those cracks and the light that gets in in Indian society, in, in the Indian economy. And now we'll show you just a very short clip from this film that gives you at least a sense, a flavor of what it's about. And then I'll expand on this subject afterwards. Thank you. Banwari Lal Sharma is a happy man. He and his family are celebrating the marriage of his oldest daughter. But as a child, Banwari often went to sleep hungry, and as a boy, ran away from his home, desperate to find work in the city. Manand Madhusudan Rao was once labeled untouchable, a member of India's lowest caste. Growing up, his family labored in the fields and worked the most undesirable jobs steeped in disrespect. Today, Madhusudan and his family live in comfort, as one of India's newest millionaires. Just a few years ago, Ramabai was considered a thief, a criminal, for farming the land on which he lived. But today, against all odds, he holds title to the land he and his family have inhabited for generations. 
Across India, people like Panwari, Madhusudan, Rama, and millions of others are leading lives in striking contrast to their childhoods. After centuries of deprivation, under a crushing system of caste and corruption that condemned millions to poverty, India is awakening. Major funding for this program has been provided by Donald and Paula Smith Family Foundation. Additional funding was provided by Family Mullencamp Charitable Fund of the Pittsburgh Foundation and Chris and Melody Roofer. Here on the streets of India, people are focusing on their future, not their past. I'm Joan Norberg, and this is Delhi, India, the second most populous city in the world, where the intersection between progress and poverty can be seen all around. I've worked in many countries around the world, and what I've learned is that the poor are not lazy or passive. They're incredibly resourceful and work hard. But here in India, they've had to devote much of that work to bypassing discrimination and regulation. But now, those obstacles are being removed, and people are improving their lives on an incredible scale. India is starting to flourish. The UN predicts that by 2030, India will have the largest population in the world. Citigroup estimates that by 2050, India will have the world's largest economy, larger than China and the United States. India is still struggling with problems, poverty, Human trafficking, crimes against women are real issues here. But things are changing rapidly. In the past 20 years, nearly a quarter of a billion people have risen out of poverty. Economic forces and political change have combined to create a growing middle class. There are seismic changes going on in this soon-to-be-largest country on the planet. One by one, people are breaking free. So I challenged myself and worked hard and finally purchased a house here without taking a loan. Everyone is very happy. My father, my mother, my wife, my mother-in-law, everybody in my family is very happy. I always thank God from the bottom of my heart. My son-in-law should have God's blessings. If one tree grows big, it becomes a shelter for many plants and creatures and gives shades to many. This is also like that. If one in the family is well off, he or she will be able to help others. Madhusudan and his wife are raising their children regardless of caste to live the life that they choose for themselves. At last, India is prospering. People are gaining control over their lives. Yes, things are far from perfect. We are witnessing a work in progress. There are still public officials who harass merchants for bribes. 
we still see profound human rights challenges that must be overcome. According to the World Bank, almost 22% of India's population still lives in poverty today. But think about it. 20 years ago, the poverty rate was over 45%. Poverty has been reduced by more than half. Growth does pull up people into gainful employment. We know that now. Growth makes social transformations also possible. That's when people begin to, to really develop and, and, and begin to acquire uh, all the ambition and aspirations. So it's an ongoing experiment to be able to intensify, deepen it, and get more out of it. Finally, we had an engine that could actually move. In uh, subsequent decades, hundreds of millions of people left absolute poverty into to enter a middle-class lifestyle. So that what we have seen in our lifetimes is the greatest poverty elimination program in the history of the human race. India's progress happened because of the abilities of ordinary people. It didn't happen because of a government plan, outside aid or IMF programs. The potential was there all the time, within India's own borders, in its own people. The moment they were empowered, they began to raise the subcontinent out of poverty through their own initiative and hard work. Who cared about India, right? It was just a forgotten land. Now, alongside the prosperity and the impact on poverty, India is also going to begin to play a major role in the world economy to be taken seriously. The rise of India has been the defining event of my life. Here is a nation that is rising on the basis of the principles of political and economic liberty that liberated the West. And this is happening at a time when the West is agonizing over their own system of capitalism. And so I think that it is reassuring that the principles that gave rise to, that brought so much prosperity and freedom to the West are being affirmed in a country that is in the East and a very big country at that. And so the rise of India is not only good for the 1.2 billion Indians, it's also good for the world. Watch for India Awakes in 2015 on your local public television station. Thank you. I also think that there are DVDs of the uh, film outside of here if you can't wait for public television. You can tell the Indian story from different angles. You could talk about the IT service industry, the Infosys, the Vipros, the Tata services companies. You can talk about Ford's 400-acre factory in Gujarat or Foxconn, who now plans to invest in some half a dozen, a dozen mega factories in India. But the angle we chose for this film is another one which we also think tell this story in an important way, and that's more of the grassroots capitalism. Those, all those individuals, all those 
millions of Indians with energy and entrepreneurial talent who get used for that talent only now when the system really begins to open up. Like the 25 million street vendors who were not legally recognized as formal business owners until a few years ago and therefore could be harassed, stopped, blocked, they couldn't get ca attract capital, they could never expand, they couldn't build real stores and so on. I'll mention two of those stories, expand a little bit on two of these stories because I think they're important in their own right but also and also because there are a few excellent recent Cato papers on, on, uh, that gives you a background to these stories if you are interested in following them up. And they, those papers are out there as well. One of them is Madhusudan Rao, who is a Dalit, uh, once considered untouchables, uh, on the lowest rung of the caste system. Uh, you couldn't even touch them. Worked in the dirtiest, most dangerous jobs in agriculture and sanitation and so on. The social transformation that begins to occur when we have urbanization, when we have markets, when we have competition, might have the biggest and most important um, effect in, for people like that. When people are more interested in cities, in markets, in what you can do and at what price, rather than your family background or your caste. Madhusudan Rao, he moved into the city because he thought that that would give him the big, greatest opportunity of getting a real job, something that could help him give his family a comfortable life, his parents a comfortable life. And what he did was that he moved to Hyderabad, and he did this in a, at a moment when telecommunications industries began to expand and really explode. And he had a knows for business. And at some point, he overheard a contractor scolding an employee for not providing enough with workers to dig trenches for telephone cables. And he thought, here's an opportunity. Here's one of those cracks in the system when I can step in. And what he did was that he said, look, I can give you at least 25 workers who could do this until 10 o'clock tonight. And the contractor got interested and gave him a chance. So he went to his sister, borrowed the money she could uh, uh, lend him. So he rented a truck, got back into the rural areas and uh, talked to men that he knew, that he knew could do a hard work at a, in, in, um, immediately. And he came back with some 40 workers and they did it all in a short period. The contractor was overjoyed, the workers were paid straight away and Madhusudan himself made more money in one day than he had seen in his whole life until then. So he got more jobs like that to connect people to get those workers uh, into the right places, started several businesses doing this and in the end formed a construction company and he now employs 350 workers on an ongoing basis. And one of the points is that he hires them regardless of caste, because when you've had problems uh, doing that, when you have been discriminated against, working with prices, with wages, being able to compete with a price mechanism is a powerful weapon, because then you can do the same work cheaper than others can. And when you're in the city, when the price mechanism is the important thing, then you suddenly... You don't care much about the family background, about the cost, only what you can do. So he's now one of India's most recent millionaires. He's been able to give his parents and his wife's parents back in the village a comfortable life. And he has also moved into a housing complex of uh, 
lot of well-to-do people. Uh, you saw him saying that he was proud of doing this without even getting a loan. Well, one of the reasons was that he was a visitor there and they didn't know about his family background. He overheard someone saying that it's a good thing that only upper caste people lives here. And then he thought, I'll show them. So he just worked a bit harder, got more money, bought an apartment there without a loan, and now he has accomplished another of his goals in his lives. So basically, Indians are starting to succeed in India as well. That's what the story tells you. And also, and even more important, it beats some of the traditions, some of the um, uh, old cultural change that the caste system and other traditions imposed on people. The price mechanism turns out to be stronger than the caste system when they are in open competition. And there is a paper here by Shwaminathan Ayar, Capitalism's Assault on the Indian Caste System, which records this development on a larger scale as well, looks at the living standards of especially Dalits, and how that has changed, especially since 1991, how they are beginning to start businesses, how they are beginning to make a better life, how they are beginning to move into new sectors, into new areas that, where they weren't welcome before. Deep in the hills, within the forests, live the tribal people who are not even formally a, a part of the caste system. We look at some of the tribal people who have farmed their lands for ages but never had a formal title to the land. The British thought that they owned it and just stole their land, stole their, um, their trees. And when we had the Indian independence, the forest department and the government thought that they owned that land and didn't formally recognize the ownership of those who had tended the land for ages. They weren't even allowed to build wells or irrigation system on the land. And they had no economic incentive to do this because if they did, the moment they got their farms, their agri agriculture to work, well, someone else could step in and confiscate uh, the land. They could uproot the crops, which was, of course, a breeding ground for corruption because then the police just stepped in and said, or the uh, government authorities stepped in and said, if you don't pay us, we'll take this from you. So they had to think short term, not because of cultural reasons, not because of ancient traditions, because they didn't have a safe property right in their own land. They had to take what they could briefly because they didn't know about what could happen tomorrow. So they, the lands were often depleted. They often cut down the forests if they could make a living in the short period because of that. Ramabai, as we saw, was considered a thief for tending the land that he owned. But with the changes, with the economic reforms, they began to step up and talk about their rights as well. And in 2006, we got a new Forest Rights Act, which said that if you could prove that you farmed this land, if you informally owned this land before, 2000 and at the end, before the end of 2005, you will get a legal title to the land. The villagers were overjoyed. They were delighted and thought that this would change their lives. The problem, though, is that it's difficult to prove something like that. There's no land registry. There's no formal um, uh, registration of the land that you farmed. So only 10% of the claims to new titles were approved of in the places where, that we looked at. But then they got an idea. What about using new communications devices, new technologies to, um, to try to prove our claims? They use satellite imagery 
they used Google Maps, archival satellite maps that could prove that this land was farmed before 2006. And then to show which section of this land was held by specific, specific individual or a specific family, they used handheld GPSs and walked along the land and showed this and superimposed this on the satellite imagery and returned those maps from the village to the um, government authorities. And not just 10% of the claims, but 90% of the claims were then approved of. And as a result, many of them now own even formally the land that they always owned in an informal way. So they can begin to build wells, they can invest in better crops, they can invest in irrigation, safe in the assurance that they will own the result and reap the rewards of those long-term investments in the future. And lands entirely depleted under the Forest Department is now being regenerated in a lot of places around India. There's a paper on this, an innovative approach to land registration in the developing world that you can pick up on your way out of here as well by Peter and Clayton Schaefer that uh, looks at this process, how new technologies and the intersection between new technologies, uh, new uh, ownership rules and civil society groups, how they now make property rights a reality for more people in India and other emerging economies. So there are success stories, and we like to present them because it shows you what is possible. It tells the world the, about the potential that was there all along in India. But India still has a very long way to go, as Ian pointed out here in the beginning. Plenty of regulations are still in place. The labor market is very regulated. The courts are closed. The government of uh, Prime Minister Modi is making all the right noises about being more business-friendly, opening up opportunities for ordinary people to engage in, in business and entrepreneurship and trade. They have set the goals of, goal of being at least one of the 50 best places in the world of doing business, according to the World Bank Doing Business um, Index. And that's a great goal. It would be a tremendous achievement if that happened. But presently, India is at place 142 out of 189 countries. So there's a long way to go before they're even in the best half of the countries in the world. And it gets much worse if we look at a few specifics that are important for businesses if they are to expand. When it comes to approving construction permits, India is the 184th country out of 189. When it comes to enforcing contracts, it's 186 out of 189 countries. So that goes to show why India succeeds when it comes to the different service sectors. IT services, yes, you don't have to build large, huge factory complexes. You don't have to have access to ports and very smooth uh, movements of, of big goods to new cities and to other parts of the world. But if you want to unleash the manufacturing industry, if you want to open up the farming sector as well, then you need to deal with those micro-reforms as well. One million youngsters join the labor force every month, and they can't all work at IT service industries in the big cities in India. They're also often unskilled, and they need something else. If you look at the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of the uh, World Indexes, you can see tremendous forward movement when it comes to India. In 1975, 
India scored only 4.5 out of 10 in the index, where 10 is the most economically free. Now it's 6.5, and that's a big change. That's like going from where Zimbabwe is today to where Vietnam or Thailand is today. And that's a great achievement in itself. But it still only makes India 110 out of 152 countries. So a lot of things have been done, and that's why we can see these achievements. When there are cracks in the system, the light gets in, people can start to do things. But we need more cracks, and the whole, um, the whole, all those barriers to businesses, to trade, to the human achievements in business and culture must come down as well. India is waking up. That's, the, that's our story. India awakes. But just waking up, having a decent cof- coffee and making a to-do list is not enough. That's just the start of the day, right? Then you have to look at that to-do list and begin to tick the boxes and really accomplish things. So it's a hopeful message about the potential that's there, what goes on, but more has got to be done. It's morning in India, but as you all know, that's when the workday is about to begin. Thank you. Thanks very much, Johan. We have time for questions and answers. If you have a question, raise your hand and one called. Uh, wait for the microphone, please, and then identify yourself and your affiliation. We'll take a question right there. Thank you. Uh, Ajay Gupta, Health Solutions Research. Uh, Mr. Norberg, you, you mentioned the tremendous progress India has made in terms of raising people out of poverty. And Could you, you hold the microphone a yes. little bit closer to you? And you attribute that reduction in poverty to economic freedoms. And yet, India is still low on the list of countries where it's good to do business. In that climate, is there really any ceiling to what India could achieve if it gets to the top 50 or the top 10 in terms of uh, being a good place to do business? Well, that's a very... Uh, good and hopeful point in a way. If this is what India achieves when it's 110 out of 152 countries, just wait until um, it uh, makes even more progress. And, uh, well, if you want to see even more of what India can accomplish, well, then look no further than the new CEO of Google. Uh, so I think there's tremendous potential in other places. You can, we can, in a very precise way, track the progress that has been done to the reforms that have been done in the economy. Those areas where the government has been asleep or made the conscious decision to open up. We've seen that progress, but not in the other sectors. Uh, The IT service industry is such a great example, I think, because that's an area where where we have had an open sector for a longer period and to a larger extent than anything else in India, partly as a result of the fact that it wasn't an important industry. Uh, The... uh, before the reforms, the Indian government said that, look, manufacturing is incredibly important. So we have to have license requirement, tariff barriers to protect all those businesses. We have to re- have regulations everywhere. And nothing happened. The same thing with agriculture, all those regulations um, in place. But telephones, computers, that's not something that we have great use for, as supposedly Indira Gandhi even, uh, even said, uh, which meant that it was a completely unregulated industry, which gave place for experiments for entrepreneurs to just play around with the latest technologies and see what they can do. And at the same time, on the other side of the various oceans, uh, Western economies, Western governments had not put tariff barriers and protection in place against Indian goods, as they did when it came to 
any kind of labor-intense uh, manufacturing in uh, garments, clothes, and, and agriculture, and so on. It was a fairly open market. And then suddenly that whole thing just exploded, and it made incredibly rapid progress. Now, if the same thing happens in manufacturing and agriculture, I'm, I'm sure that we'll would see something similar happening there as well. Take a question in front, please. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael Kurtzig, formerly of the USDA. You mentioned 2050 and the population explosion. When I was in China, as I am quite often, I heard the data that in the decade from 2000 to 2010, the Chinese population grew by 70 million, the India population grew by 180 million. So the question I have is, will this population boom, growth, whatever you eat up any progress? Will there be enough fresh water, enough land, enough social resources, enough doctors, enough education uh, universities? And uh, so my question is about, is about resources and whether India can support such a huge population or are there any plans to do some family planning, let's put it that way. Thank you. Um, the question in one way is about, uh, is India still in some sort of Malthusian trap? And is it that the population grows faster than, than production can uh, sustain? I think that the result is already in. In just three years, India has um, decreased poverty by 140 million, despite the fact that the population is growing rapidly. I mean, if... If just poverty stayed in place, it should, um, as a percentage of the population, it should grow. Popula uh, poverty should grow uh, quite a bit. I think that even now, what has happened with the economy, with the growth rates, even in manufacturing and in agriculture, we've already seen how that is faster than the population growth. Um, but it's true that there are local problems and difficulties when it comes to come to all these things. Lots of bottlenecks. I mean, education is one of them. Uh, if you go, we have um, surveys of rural schools in, in India where about a third of the teachers, they're just not there. And it's an incredible difficulty of finding the, the right talent, the right employees. Um, that's a bottleneck problem because as the population is growing, we also have more uh, people who could become the teachers, the producers, the uh, entrepreneurs, and, and so on. We can see how the private sector steps in when it comes to education. And The Economist had a cover story on this when they focused on India and uh, quite a bit uh, just two weeks ago. So I think that as the market is becoming more open, we also see how people step in when there is demand for those those different things. So I have great hope that India is already out of the Malthusian uh, trap in a way. And it might be that in 20 years' time we'll ask the question, is, uh, will China's shrinking population be able to sustain uh, the kind of uh, growth, the kind of economy, the kind of needs that that population has? The working population in China is already uh, decreasing. So it might just be that that's what we will be worrying about in the future. Yeah. Uh, Take a, take a question. Another one in the front row here, please. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Natalie Schreier. I'm from American University's Graduate School of Communication. Um, given what we know about violence against women in India, um, we've all read the news stories, uh, rapes on public transportation, intimate partner spousal rape, um, what is the role of women in the economic rise of India, and how can India stem the tide of violence? Yeah. 
Well, that's an incredible... That's the most important subject that we don't look at in this, uh, in this show, in a way. Um, but we'll probably do another Indian story, I'm, I'm sure. That is an incredibly important uh, uh, story, and one that goes a very long way back. We know that in India and in the region generally, we have a history of discrimination against girls, against women. We have the problem of uh, the lack of women. There are so many missing women. There should be more. So apparently something is going on in the first years of, um, of um, kids' lives that are incredibly uh, disturbing. And that's a problem that has been ongoing for since ancient times, in a way. I have not yet read anything that shows that these problems, when it comes to discrimination and violence against women, that that's something that is really on the increase. What I've clearly seen is that the attention being paid to it has increased dramatically, and that's many things that were considered quite normal, part of everyday life, not the least in rural areas, is now becoming more and more being seen as a problem. And that's got to do with education, it's going, it got to do with uh, more widespread communication, it's got to do with civil rights groups that begin to organize and, con- and look at these problems uh, in themselves. It's partly also a result of more women entering the labor market and becoming more, uh, more not just dependent on the husband's work. It used to be that, uh, yeah, there's, there are laws against uh, mistreating a wife, against beating a wife. You could go to a court formally and do something about that. But if you're totally dependent on your husband um, for your survival, if you can't get another kind of, any kind of job outside of your home, well, then you probably won't do that. What has happened in recent years is as they become more economically independent, we also see more cases like that being taken to court. There's more widespread attention being paid to it, more media attention being paid to it. So it's an awful story that I'm very hopeful about, that we are seeing more action against in the future. Yep, in the, in the aisle there. Yes, my name is Ronald Wilson with Social Security. Uh, my question is, uh, India's uh, internal problems and uh, progress, do you think they will uh, be influenced or will there be a, uh, a counterbalance against their continued growth uh, based upon external factors such as competing uh, interests of uh, other BRAC nations and NATO nations, which could, uh, uh, which could, uh, I'd, I'd say, compromise their uh, continued growth because of com- competing factors of the uh, global market. You mean the fact that other countries are moving into the same sectors? Is that it? Yes, it's becoming more difficult to be the first mover when everybody else is moving as well into various sectors of, of the world. Um, so, so yes, this is something that India should have done a long time ago, in a way. At the, at the same time, I don't see that so far as the real uh, uh, bottleneck. We can see that it's, there's a tremendous growth going on and more uh, like a demand for, for um, labor and investments the moment markets are being opened in India. What we can say, though, I think, is that Whereas 
India has uh, done things in in the service sector. As I said, they can't. You can't all work in in services. You have to open up the manufacturing sector. You have to open up the the agricultural sector. There's a lot of internal demand for these things as well. There's a huge market in in the urban centres. A new middle class growing with a lot of demand for all those goods. And uh, if you have the infrastructure in place, if you open those markets, if you abolish internal tariffs and make sure that the uh, domestic market is more open, then you'll see an incredible domestic demand as well. There's one advantage of India in it's just the size of the place. Uh, we used to think that it's the other way around. Uh, we used to say that, oh, in today's economy, only the small places, Hong Kong and Taiwan, they can, they can prosper. But China and India, they're never going to grow. Now everybody is asking the other question. Is it only the giants that can grow in, in such an economy? I think it works both ways, and it's so much dependent on the policy uh, direction. But one thing is to be said for a huge country, if it has smooth, seamless um, movements, mobility, markets uh, within. And that's the fact that you've got a huge pool of talent in anything, in science, in technology, in education, in business. You can get the very best managers and scientists. And at the same time, you have access to an enormous labor supply uh, at a fairly cheap cost if you compare it to Sweden and, and the United States. So it's fairly easy if the market is open to, to build fairly impressive integrated businesses of the best uh, management and technology standards, and at the same time, a very big um, labor supply. So, so, so far, that's not a huge bottleneck, I think. Yes, up there in the aisle, please. Over there. Uh, my name is Samar Chatterjee, Safe Foundation. Uh, Mr. Norberg, uh, it's interesting to see you made a film. And, uh, you know, I've been in this country from 1969, and I've seen those days, the late 60s and 70s, and even 80s, when bad things were always said in American media. Now suddenly it's just upside down. A lot of good things are being said. Uh, but the country, in my opinion, still remains the same. And you mentioned, talked about the crack it's uh, those of us who have very intimate connection with India. We see a lot of fraudsters and cheats coming through the crack, and and the justice system. I think you mentioned it hasn't really improved, and uh, we need a much more stronger and much more powerful justice system to prevent that kind of cheats. Because those of us who are who are, who are now victims of more cheaters who've prospered and have come into mainstream and are ready to cheat people. How do we do that? <laughs> That's a very good uh, point and a nice way of expressing it as well, uh, of phrasing it. Uh, but I, I would say that the only thing worse than having a lot of fraudsters and, and tricksters in, in a society is not having fraudsters and tricksters, because at least it shows that there's a dynamic situation. There are openings, there are cracks, there are opportunities uh, that can be seized. Unfortunately, some of the wrong people will do that as well. And then, obviously, rule of law is what you need to make sure that that happens. And the fact that India does terribly when it comes to uh, court cases and resolving them, making sure that everybody gets a fair hearing and that the same rules apply to everybody... <laughs> It is, it is. Um, and I think that that's a, 
that's one of the biggest obstacles in the future. If it takes you 10 years to resolve a case, then you will never go to court. And if no one does that, you know that uh, anyone can do anything because you need that threat. You need people to know the, the number to their lawyers in a way to make sure that we don't use the lawyers too much. Uh, so that people stay honest, that they, they do these things. So I think this is one of the biggest challenges in the future. And sometimes the, the opportunities move faster than the um, reform of the legal system does. And that's, this is clearly a, an example of that, and a, 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 a sector, a sphere, where a lot of progress has got to be done. Otherwise, we'll see more fraudsters in the future. Yes, question back there. Thank you. My name is Steve Hankin. I'm retired. I just wanted to ask you, during this period of economic growth, uh, what has happened to the, liter the literacy rate in India, and in general, what has happened to, to education generally? And maybe you could also comment on, are they making use of uh, the American MOOCs, which are, you know, the massive Sorry, of American MOOCs, the massive oh, yeah, online right. classes. Yeah. At first, I thought you said movies, uh, which shows you what, what an old-school person I am. Um, yes, something is happening to Indian education at a, at a, at a rapid pace as well. Um, when you talk to people there, they can s tell you that, look, my, my grandfather was illiterate, and so was everybody else in his generation. Uh, in my father's generation, a few people got an education. In my generation, everybody does. Basically, and that's not really the case, especially in rural areas. We we don't see that, but it's it's increased dramatically. The literacy rates, the <clears throat> the um, primary and secondary school participation rate, and so on. It's not always the same thing as a good education. And as I mentioned, we've got surveys from rural areas where about a third of the teachers are gone on a regular basis in the the government schools. Uh, but all, but at the same time, we see a huge takeoff of private schools. Uh, I think we've got numbers of about a quarter of, of Indian kids going to private schools instead. They cost a little bit, uh, but um, as someone put it, um, if you go to the local market and they uh, give you apples and uh, oranges for free, they're often rotten. <laughs> so I pay a little bit more and I get good and decent apples instead. So, so something is going on there, and especially we can see it on the demand side. People now, uh, Parents now think they always should give their kids an education. And the moment you do that, the rest in your village is going to do that, and then it takes off almost everywhere. So that's an impressive uh, thing that goes on. And, and there is also a tradition of um, scholarly achievement, uh, as you know, in India. So they make use of the communications technologies that, that are there. They make use of American MOOCs, uh, online courses from the best universities. And that's just imagine the opportunities that are out there. If you know the English language to a fairly good extent, you suddenly can go to courses from the best universities on the planet, even if you live in a, in a small village north of Delhi. And a lot of Indians, uh, they do that. Some of them try to get to those universities after a while. Some of them stay uh, behind and improve the economy in that way. So, so I... I mean, we follow in this show uneducated people, in a way, from very poor backgrounds. 
what they can do when they have more uh, of an access to the economy, to capital, to business opportunities is stunning, I think. Well, imagine what their kids can do when they all have an education, if it's, uh, if it's decent. Uh, how they can scale up their businesses, how they can integrate with the global economy when they have access to the latest ideas, technologies, business models and so on. Is, is, that's one of the things that gives me the greatest hopes. Uh, yes, right here in front. Hi, I'm uh, John Swallow from Arlington, Virginia. And in our country, like Virginia, there's Northern Virginia has five times more job growth than Maryland because of the difference in the regulatory climates. How is that, say, Kerala State and uh, 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 Kananaka State that are joining states? And uh, Kerala State, I believe, is communist. How, uh, Bangalore is the Silicon Valley of uh, India. How much difference is there yeah. between states within India? And then... What's the worst, what's the best type of Yeah, thing? this is really the one thing that we have to remind ourselves constantly. It's, it's not a country, it's a continent. It's, I mean, it's 1.25 billion people. And, and um, I think it's 22 different official languages, uh, according to the Constitution. It's a huge place, and trying to sort of make it all justice in a 60-minute TV show is just impossible. The di- regional differences are huge. And and they're very big in different ways. Um, one of them being that they're run by different parties with different philosophy. As you point out, Kerala, it's uh, the formerly communist party has been in power for a very long time. It's not. I wouldn't call it communist in the uh, sort of uh, traditional Marxist sense. It's a more kind of a business-friendly um, communist uh, um, party that looks more to sort of how can we. Um, Make as, as one of the communists put it, uh, our ambition is to make a few people incredibly rich and then we can hope that this will trickle down and abolish poverty and that's what communism is about, to abolish poverty. Um, but yeah, they, but at the same time, they have been put more obstacles in place of businesses and focused instead more on welfare spending and, and other things. So uh, according to some indicators, they do very well when it comes to literacy, things like that. Uh, they've done more when it comes to um, gender issues. Uh, but the economy is not as dynamic as it is in other places. And, you know, the... Um, but I think you can also see that there's a clear divide between a few of the urban centers and all the things that they've done to business opposed to more traditionalist places where just the economy has not been opened up at all and still many of the traditionalist uh, ways are in place. So it's interesting sometimes when economists talk about the difference in what has been going on in China uh, for the last 30 years, the rapid pace of economic progress uh, as opposed to India. Well, then you can say, yeah, but you know, those Indian states... And cities that implemented those reforms in the 1980s, they've made even more progress than China, whereas those who have not, they've lagged behind. So in a way, it's a huge laboratory for different, um, different ways of, of uh, making uh, economic progress. And in a way, that's a good thing. It's not a good thing if you end up in one of those uh, more traditionalist places. But it also means that you see more experiments. And then you can learn from those experiments and also start all over again. Gujarat is a place that has been business-friendly for quite some time, made incredibly rapid progress, uh, and that's now something that's been 
an inspiration to the country and the um, guy who used to run it is now the Prime Minister of India trying to implement policies like that on a more uh, national scale. So I think there's something to be said for experiments like that and that kind of gradual trial and error process that you get then. Yes, in the middle there. Yep. Over uh, in the back there. Justin Friedman with the American Financial Services Association. My question <clears throat> is about access to credit, and in particular, in rural areas. So I think we all know that technology has provided incredible opportunities to extend financial services outside of urban and developed areas. What is the progress, and are there regulatory barriers? And also, is India attracting foreign investment in this sector? Yeah. You can say that, yes, progress is being done, but from a very low base. And, I mean, the greatest obstacle is just that we haven't had uh, formal titles to businesses to land in so many places. And in that case, you can't really uh, attract capital if you don't have a land registry. You can't use that as collateral at all. It's beginning to change, but at a slow pace. We've had this land law in place since 2006, but at the same time it takes time until that land is recognized, until you can begin to attract capital. Same thing with businesses. We, one of the stories we look at is street vendors, 25 million of them in India, and they've never been legally recognized as businesses, and in that case you can't attract capital. But now, since 2012, that is happening. But then, again, at different speeds in different parts of the country. But slowly and steadily, that is happening, and then they can begin to attract capital and so on. The latest thing that is going on, and this will be the huge... uh, uh, This could lead to a huge transition. That's an electronic registry uh, of... um, of some, I don't know, could it be some 700 uh, million people? Uh, that's at least the, um, the ambition. Uh, that would give them also bank accounts and other things that would sort of kickstart that process in many ways. Because otherwise you have all these local and regional attempts to try to deal with it on a more informal basis. But it's difficult to scale that up. But now with the identity of people and of land and of businesses in a more uh, formally recognized way, that is happening in a, at, a, at a rapid pace. And then that's probably the stage when we'll see foreign investments in that sector as well, because without that, it's only being done on a very small, local, and often in a civil society NGO kind of way, more microloans than, than anything else. We have time for a couple more questions. And we'll take a question right there in the aisle, please. Uh, hello, uh, I'm Nasser Kilji. I'm an economist with the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, I watched with, uh, I've been a student of development for the last 40 years, and I, it's always great to see someone so optimistic about a country, especially about India. We all have reason to be optimistic. And, you know, one of the things I always note when we have optimistic speakers like you talking about a country like India or others is they use the word if a lot, I am instead of using the word how, okay? Unfortunately, in development, you talked about if India had seamless markets, if India had perfect legal system, and all that stuff. If we could find the magic bullet 
to get all that done, that'd be great. Now let's just do a, uh, I was just listening to Raghuram Rajan, who in fact is the central bank governor of India, uh, about two or three months ago at the World Bank IMF meetings. And he was talking about the problems that India faces. Now, if anyone who should be optimistic about India should be Raghuram Rajan, beside you. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things that he pointed out, which if you look at China and look at India, one of the major differences is that the government in China has trillions of dollars of reserves. They can make things happen. They can make cities, they can have highways, they can do anything they want to. India, unfortunately, has no resources in the public sector. And that's going to be the big constraint, which you've never talked about. Because uh, you talk about the bad things that the government has done. The, the good things that the government can do, they don't have the resources. Have you considered how India could get all those tremendous trillions of dollars to build their social infrastructure, the human capital that they have to get going before they can get to that magic land by 2050. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that's a very good point. It's easy to be optimistic about development everywhere. If everybody does exactly the right things everywhere, then, then we're all optimists. Um, I'm an optimist because um, of experience and historical experience and from the starting point. If we were back in 1990 and someone said that this is what, what is going to happen in India over the next 25 years, I think there were few optimists at that time who would not have been shocked <laughs> to hear something like that being done in India, that would see those growth rates, that we would see the poverty reduction that had, has been done. And as I said, I think the job is not even halfway done in any way. Uh, it's, it's early morning and there's a very long to-do list. But I'm optimistic because in the sectors that have been opened up, we've seen this progress. So in a way, there's no silver bullet, but at least there's a, there's a, a map uh, that shows you where, uh, where to go. And uh, obviously, we have a problem with things like infrastructure, both the uh, hard infrastructure and the social infrastructure in India, and that takes a lot of resources, whether it's being done by the private sector or the public sector, we need resources to do that. But it's a bit of a chicken and an egg um, problem, because in 1979, China didn't have all those resources to begin to uh, just build all that infrastructure. It wasn't just that they waste, waited and said that, okay, let's get all this infrastructure in place and let's get airports everywhere, and then we'll have economic growth. It was the fact that they began to open up various sectors, they saw a lot of growth, they saw a lot of re ex exports, and then a lot of resources into the economy, and they could begin to uh, use that in those various sectors. And I think it's the same thing here as well. The only thing to get resources is to do things in business sectors that makes you grow, that makes you more productive, that makes sure that you have more capital and technology and intelligence in every movement of your body and then you can attract more more capital out of that so i think that is often always the way forward i think of it in a slightly different context i've been asked about what is the thing that you think people can learn from the indian experience the most and other countries and other and other poor countries around the world and i think it's the case that you can't just sit and wait for 
the resources or the infrastructure or the moment when you're sort of mature enough to participate in the global economy. Because then you'll wait forever. Because then you won't get the resources, you won't, will never grow into a mature situation where you can do these things. A lot of government used to say that, no, wait, the Indian population is not, doesn't have the education does not have the skills to participate in the global economy. So let's just wait. We need those tariff barriers to protect our businesses. But the only thing that happened behind those tariff barriers was that the, the, com- the uh, companies grew lazy. They weren't exposed to the latest technologies and the latest ideas. And in that case, they didn't implement the same thing in their business models. It was only because of this disaster in 1991 and they, that they began to open up that we suddenly saw businesses that were forced to adapt and forced to implement the latest technologies, the latest ideas, and then they suddenly became big players on the world market. So in a, kind, in a way, it's reminiscent of that old story of the man who refused to step into the water until he had learned to swim. Uh, but in that case, you'll never learn to swim. You have to step into the water, and then, yeah, a lot of bad things can happen. You'll get wet. If you can't swim, it's dangerous. It's risky. And we'll see fraudsters and tricksters, and we'll see a lot of things that, a lot of bottlenecks, a lot of things that, are not being done precisely at that moment. But that's when you begin to pick up those skills and the technology, and then you'll get the resources, and then you can start to swim better, and then you'll attract more resources, and you can do more things, and and then you create those good spirals, hopefully. Okay, we'll take one uh, last question right here in the front, please. Hi, I'm Soren Dayton. I just actually spent 16 months in India and can share some of the enormous optimism in this. And, you know, but when when you talk to Indian liberals, including some of whose work you're, I think, highlighting in this movie, they also see a dark side that they're really quite worried about. So on on the one hand, uh, the Indian parliament adjourned in the last day or two, signed a die with complete failure on all the reform items. You know, no land acquisition, no tax reform, complete political paralysis. And on the other hand, you have a, a sort of concerning backsliding on some of the political openness issues, right? I mean, there there was this, you know, bracketing the political dif- uh, disagreements aside, the woman from Greenpeace that wanted to go to London and the governing party spokesman said, well, she can't go. She's already been twice. She's not allowed to leave the country. And that... You know, there's there are a number of things that could be quite bad as it looks as it looks inward more from some of those places that have these remarkable demographic things happening or or things like that. So can you speak to yeah. some of the dark side? And again, all of these are, I suspect, things you've heard about from some of your friends that you worked with on this film. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that is uh, either the most worrying or the most entertaining thing about traveling around the world and talking to people who are interested in uh, democratic and economic reform is that uh, no one is very happy about their own country. And they're all, when we get together, we all complain that, look, we are the worst place and we need to do much more things, but you, you've made so much more progress. And the same thing goes with many of the Indian reformers and liberals that I talk to, that they, yes, are very worried about it and, and yet can see the, the big shifts that have been going on. Uh, when I say that I'm an optimist, I'm not uh, specifically saying that I'm an optimist about the political 
system and the political changes that are happening. I'm an optimist when it comes to the Indian society and the Indian people who have already shown that the moment that they get those freedoms, they can accomplish tremendous things. So that's what the hopeful message is about. But yes, politics can still ruin almost anything. There's nothing, nothing as a, uh, so hopeful that it can't be ruined by, by stupid policies. And you mentioned clearly disturbing things and problematic things, uh, both when it comes to the political situation, uh, but also when it comes to the economic reforms. And making the right noises it's not, and having the right to-do list is not the same thing as... Um, actually making them happen in the long run. So that's something that um, I think, and hopefully the attention that is being given by writers, um, by books and shows like this to the successes that have already been done in the areas where progress has been done can hopefully inspire a little bit more of that. The reason why I think that there are two reasons why I'm still slightly more optimistic than many of the Indian liberals that I meet, is that, first of, all, the ref- first of all, the tradition of Indian openness, freedom of speech, the uh, chaotic debate that takes place constantly, is that I think that that has unleashed even more of uh, various groups, civil society groups, business uh, groups, grassroots organizations that demand more freedom. And they've begun... This, the reforms have, to a certain extent, and in some sectors, become self-regenerating because more, uh, more openness has created more opportunities, a louder voice, and then they demand even more. And I th- hope that that could be decisive in the future. The other thing is that um, just this tradition of democracy more checks and balances than many other um, countries at the same income level means that it's difficult to overturn everything just because of the the wrong decisions. And once again, if you compare China to India, um, yes, if you happen to have the right... uh, uh, reforms in place in, in, a, in a dictatorship, they can do a lot of things uh, in a brief period of time. But they can also uh, unravel a lot of things in a very short time. Uh, India never had the great leap forward or the horrors of the cultural revolution. And uh, we can see now that with the centralization that goes on in China, again, to one person a little bit, is something that could be incredibly worrying if they end up in the wrong place with the wrong policies. Um, I don't think that could happen in India because of all those checks and balances that, yes, makes for a more gradual shift in every specific uh, area, but it also means that there are more different various processes going on at the same time, and it's difficult to unravel all of them. Thank you, Johan. I'm afraid that we've run out of time, but before I ask you to join me in thanking our speaker today, I'd like to remind you all that, the, that India Wakes will be shown on Maryland Public Television on Wednesday, October 7th at 10 p.m. We have a limited amount of uh, complimentary DVDs outside the, the auditorium for those of you who are interested, as well as some papers relevant to India. Uh, thank you all for coming today. I share Johan's optimism and also his caution. It just means that those of us who favor these ideas have a lot of work to still do. And please join me in, in thanking our speaker today. <laughs>